0: Hello, and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. I'm Simone Doroshford. This episode is sponsored by Smile and Blue Apron. Uh, I'm joined today by Christina Warren, Senior Tech Correspondent at Mashable.com, and Brianna Wu, Head of Development at Giant Space Cats. currently on vacation, right?
1: I am on vacation, that's it. Well, it's more like, uh, you know, I'm taking a little bit of a mental break before we ship Rev 60 because it's going to be like a lot of maybe and there will probably be harassment to go along with it. So I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm taking a slow week to like get on my feet before we do that.
0: Ah, do you have a, a date like yet specifically for the PC launch?
1: No, it's, you know, it's in the store. I could push a button right now and it would be live. Oh, Uh, cool. So you're
0: you're purposely taking the time to Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: I'm purposely uh, doing that. Also, you know, we are going to focus a lot on YouTubers this time around. Um, You know, I love Kotaku. We'll be talking about them in the show. Uh, But I think it's very notable that we got almost no sales bump when Kotaku reviewed uh, R60 Vanilla. Uh, mm-hmm. To the point we couldn't even tell statistically that there was any difference in sales at all. Oh, so, God. Uh, you know, we're, it's it's not about our game. Like, this has been a trend in the industry for a long time about YouTubers just having a lot more influence. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're kind of selecting who we're going to work with uh, for that. So, I feel like yeah. you have
0: more control I, as a person even who works for a website. No, sorry. Mm-hmm. You feel I feel like you have more control over the specific argument audience you're targeting in that case because mm-hmm. you get so many different people who read a polygon a kotaku um etc etc and let's be frank a lot of those people are uh, could be could the crappy people who are completely <laughs> biased against you
1: for no good reason i uh, don't think polygon is though i mean that's that's a pretty solid audience generally we speaking.
0: have an awesome audience and i love our yeah. readers but like in general just speaking from the the media perspective they have we have different a different audience than a youtuber who can you can target a specific their specific audience if that youtuber is playing the game and that might be a person who specifically has an in with like women people who are dr- interested in story driven games people who are interested in i don't know the kind of content that you are pushing pushing Absolute out there like- yeah, know, we'll I'm see. I you. mean,
1: we feel very laissez-faire around it here at our studio. You know, it's like um, we're we're releasing it. If it does well, that's awesome. Uh, if it doesn't do well, it doesn't really have much to do with you know the the direction we're going as mm-hmm. a studio. So it'll be fine either way.
0: That's an awesome position to be in. I'm really happy yeah, for you. Oh, right, <laughs> you're free. <laughs> I am. I what am. About- Ah, should we jump right into today's first topic then? Let's do it. Yay. It. All right. So it, we it was revealed today to me in Slack when I was working. Uh, Microsoft is planning to announce probably two new Xboxes at E3 this year. Um, Arthur Gies wrote a piece about it um, corroborated by some sources that he has. And I I don't know anything about his sources, but they like we checked it with, you know, our editor in chief and everything. So we we're very confident about this story. Uh, They're producing two new Xboxes, one uh, which is a slimmed down version of the current hardware. It's about 40 percent smaller. And that one is um, being targeted for an August release, and then another one that's targeted, targeting 2017 um, as a release that would be a lot more powerful and more powerful than the current hardware by a large margin, and then also potentially way more powerful than the specs that we've seen for PlayStation's next iteration mm-hmm. of the PlayStation 4. They're saying it could potentially be 45 percent more powerful than the what we've the specs that we've seen for that console so far. So that's huge, right? A little (laughs) bit.
1: (laughs) A little big. I mean, we talked a lot about Sony. So, you know, them kind of moving in this direction. I mean, Christina, you're more on that. I I feel like you are not directly in the game industry every day. So, like, I mean, how does this strike you? Like, what do you think about this? Well,
2: like I said, when we talked about the Sony stuff, it struck me as weird because I could just... All I could see was the consumer backlash. Um, not that I doubted that it would happen per se, but just that that it I, I could I could only like kind of feel the wrath of like releasing a more powerful console mid cycle um, that, that will still be backward compatible. Based um, on the YouTube comments for the
0: video that I published, a, a lot of people, at least of the YouTube comment
2: community, <laughs> are pretty upset. <laughs> right. Well, so, exactly. That's kind of my point. Like, I, I look at this, you know, I'm not like you guys. I'm not in the game industry every day. I, I, I do play games. I love games. I've been playing games my whole life. But, like, it's not my life, you know? And But, but so I look at this as a consumer, and I think the backlash would be huge. Um, I also feel like even, you know, kind of having these 1.5, con- these, you know, generation 1.5 consoles, it's kind of a weird play. Um, but at the same time, you know... It, the Sony stuff is all but confirmed. You know, Giant Bomb had basically like a schematics. Like it seems like that's gonna happen. Um the fact that, that both Kotaku and Polygon and The Verge have all had information suggests that that the the Xbox rumor is true too. And and that makes you think, you know, both but to me, I wonder if it changes the scenario any if both companies are doing this. And and I wonder, you know, you have to think about why. And 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 the obvious answer is that they have to be more powerful to do VR. And when they were developing the PlayStation uh, 4 and the Xbox One, you know, however many years ago when they were getting that roadmap down the line, they just didn't see that consumer VR was going to be a thing. You know, they probably figured that ship had sailed or it would be down the line in the future. And now they're kind of, you know, like faced with, whoa, there's this there's this real thing happening in gaming and happening in computing and we want to be able to uh, be part of it. And if we, the only way to do that is is to, you know, upgrade the hardware on our consoles, even if we're not ready to do a full console rollout, and even if we're not done with you know the consoles we're uh, we're currently selling,
1: but can we take just like one second, like take a historic look at this because the last yeah. generation was an unusually long generation. Yes, it was. Like, it was like what twice as long as yeah, it was the like systems seven years. before. It was really really long and. Yeah. One of the reasons Sony had such a problem getting a foothold in the beginning, Simone, do you remember how much the PS3 was? Was it six hundred dollars when it launched? It was. It
2: was six hundred dollars. It was five ninety nine. I want to say, yeah, it was was super expensive.
1: So, you know, they they very deliberately this time around made a choice that we're gonna bring this in, we're gonna use x86 so it's you know, yep. more middleware is available for developers. Yep, we're not, not using buy the custom like, we're not exactly, gonna do not custom, custom stuff. Chips. It's all these decisions to keep the cost down. But I think you're you're dead on, Christina, when you say it's kind of um you know, blindsided them. I do have to say though, from an engine perspective point of view. A trend in the game industry that has really become a norm in the last few years is uh, engine scaling. And this right. is very, very relevant to a topic like I wanted to do today. and We just didn't have time because there's too much show about Blizzard choosing to not bring Overwatch to OS 10. Because Blizzard has typically been excellent about um, shipping a game with an art style that can work on a very low-end PC, but then looks gorgeous if you have a more powerful um, computer to run it on. That's been a trend for a really long time that you see Unreal increasingly supporting it. Unity increasingly supporting it and even these proprietary engines having this built in. So, you know, having this kind of 1.5 generation, you know, upgrade makes a lot of sense because they can put that out. They can just have it be this universal default with, you know, X, Y and Z is going to be on. And you know essentially uh, you know, basically test and produce games for two platforms without right. you know much more development costs so I have no problem with it personally yeah
2: I was going to ask you from from a developer standpoint what the, what the challenges would be and it seems like you answered that now let me ask you this you know with PC games obviously the whole mm-hmm. you've always been able to kind of you know you have to really you have to test it for, for, for different platforms and you have different performance specs and, and obviously you know different resolutions and different processors and GPUs will all um, impact the performance but but traditionally on console games you know with been this sort of thing where it runs the same everywhere. Um, how would things in terms of packaging this, I mean, does the x86 based, would this help things as well as the, the engine changes, would that help things where they might be able to release one skew of a game where you would go to the store and buy the PS4 or buy the Xbox One version of Game X and it would work and then perform the way that it needs to perform, no matter if you have, you know, the original Xbox One or you have the Xbox One Scorpion. Would that be possible? Would it be possible for them to, oh, yeah. to, to, to build the code that way so maybe they they download things code wise or they optimize it so that it would it would perform differently depending on the console, but they wouldn't have to release two physical two two different SKUs. Absolutely. In
1: In fact, that's trivial. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, Rem 60 on the iPhone for iOS, if you were using like a really modern iPad, it will detect that and um, it calculates the texture. So if you're using like a really powerful modern iPad, you will actually get retina resolution on it to so, like speed up frame rate on slower ipads it will like upsample it and and pick it apart because frame rate is more important than you know aliasing right. on textures so those kinds of changes are actually very 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 routine as you're working in like game engines you know for us we just you know we we turn on okay are you using this resolution okay we're we're going to use this texture approach we're going to turn this particle up to this you know this effect is going to be on. So that kind of engine scaling, it's it's very easy to do that so the consumer doesn't even have to mess with it. And yeah, I think it's also worth saying when we're thinking about this problem, you know, Sony and Microsoft have upgraded the internals of subsequent releases of their consoles for years. You can look at a very early PS3 and then like a PS3 that was just released, it's gonna be a much faster processor. They do that because it lowers the heat, it makes it more reliable if it's not trying to push itself as hard. So yeah, these kinds of changes are actually you know, what people have been using in consoles for a long time.
2: Right. I guess the difference has been that the performance-wise, even if they might have a faster processor and do other things, it's still been clocked the same yep. and the games have still been been running at the same, you know, yep. uh, levels. There hasn't been a differentiation where, you know, as the, the PS3 I buy to, you know, uh, that I bought at the end of the cycle and the one I bought earlier. The one earlier actually technically was better because it was backward compatible in that
1: backwards <laughs> way. Right. Right. And we kind of work. But
2: you know what I mean? But anyway, but but like the… You know, but but the, the the overall experience, even if it might have been faster, and like I remember the original PS One because I had one of those. You know, had overheating issues, and you sometimes would have to turn it over. But it also had a data port on the back that let you hack your console to play burned Game games. games. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, session limitations is over. I can admit that yes, I played pirated video <laughs> <laughs> games Very in the nineteen nineties, Christina. Um, yeah. I bought a ton too, but anyway, but but I guess, you know, this, the difference would be that there is this this 1.5, there is going to be this difference. Now, Simone, since you were talking about kind of the YouTube comments, um, what's your perspective as somebody who, you know, plays games a lot, who, you know, is somebody who's buying these things? You have a PS4, right? hmm
0: I do. Okay. And I, I'm Are you still pissed? kind of sifting through my feelings about this. They have said that games will be compatible on on the new xboxes obviously all the games and software obviously. will still run and then one of the big differences is also that these new ones both will uh support 4k video which right. i think they're you you mentioned I, before this call actually started you were talking about xbox kind of being behind on the video game. <laughs> Not video
2: games, but video. The, video the streaming <laughs> services. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, But this is one of the other rumors, uh, just to interject really quickly. Uh, in addition, this was something that The Verge reported is that uh, Microsoft is working on on um, an Xbox TV device. So it would be primarily like a streaming device. And in the idea that it might be kind of like the the PlayStation View a little bit, in that it would um, let you stream, um, you know, games from one thing to another, but also act as kind of a set top box, like an Apple TV or a Roku or, or a Fire TV. Um, and and the the problem that they've had is that they when the Xbox 360 was in its heyday, at, at a certain point, like I think something like eighty percent of people who were buying. Xbox 360s were not buying them to play games. They were actually buying them to consume video content. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, Microsoft would tell me that over and over and over again. And they really built up this huge, you know, like, living room play. And then with the Xbox One – you know, originally it had, you know, one of the big touted features that they've since kind of dropped was that it would be able to interconnect with your cable box and really have this smart TV experience, and that didn't really take off. And a lot of their streaming plays have kind of been subserved by, you know, uh, you know if people are really into gaming, then they might look at, you know, something like the… Um, what is it, the NVIDIA Shield, you know, where they might, you know, again you've got your your Chromecasts and and, and you know Apple TVs and that stuff. And so they kind of missed out on like the, the ne the next wave of, of streaming devices. But anyway, go back Simone. I was thinking about um
0: the w- you mentioned briefly earlier console life cycles and I'm kind of mulling over in my head this idea that we kind of I mean I feel like our perspective on console life cycles is necessarily skewed just because consoles uh, gaming consoles relatively haven't been around that long oh yeah they have They've been around forty years. Okay, historically, but I, I don't because I, I feel like we don't have enough data points. Like there, there's not a lot of consistency with console life cycles in the same way that there was with phones or with TVs, where you know you'll keep one till it breaks or you'll keep one till you need to up, up this, till, till till there's like a big upgrade in the technology. But with console life cycles, it's such a, a different thing and it's so variable. So I. <laughs> I really I I don't know. I I definitely I I think that they can do it right. I think especially since um what Brianna was saying like games won't necessarily they won't, you know, be un, you won't be able, unable to play them on your OG Xbox 1 or your OG PS4. You'll you'll still have access to that content. It's just that, you know, tech technolo- the technology is moving and it's moving very quickly and like uh, Phil Spencer um was talking a while ago about the when PlayStation is, you know, adding that box to their PS4 in an effort to bring it up to being VR compatible. This was I think before they started talking about the PS4 Neo, but like right. what needs to change is the b- entire console itself. Like that that whole thing needs an upgrade to shove it into this like next realm of what we need to do with this content. So i think they're doing kind of what needs to be done to keep the things current and that is really important because being left behind would probably be worse than having a bunch of consumers going ah, i just bought an xbox one why are you releasing right. a new one in august uh, can, well, can, they have can to we happen. be
1: honest here though like i i recently got a new playstation 3 controller because my batteries in mine were just dead from eight years of use and started playing a lot of ps3 games this is my freaking job simone and I can barely tell the visual difference in a PS3 and a PS4. I mean, I could sit there. I can look at light bloom. I can look at some of the the, the VFX that are used. But Clearly, you're, you're not playing out. Uncharted 4. <laughs> Uncharted 4 looks gorgeous. It's a great game, but like, what are the differences there? It's 2K normal mapping on Nathan Drake, and it's a lot. Um, it's a lot more memory for texture load. So you have a lot of uh, different things in the environment for the mm-hmm. static meshes. I think
0: we can also but realistically say, like, not every game is Uncharted 4. Not every game is right, Sony's right, flagship right, franchise that needs right. to look the pinnacle of what graphics can be in this generation. No, totally. From...
1: So, but that's my point. Is this is my own field. And just like, um, you know, Christina, like sometimes you talk about media inside baseball and you Mm were talking about things that, because I don't work in that industry, like you know people and say things and I just can't follow the conversation. In that same way, sometimes like when I watch special effects for a movie, because 3D art is my profession, I see things that normal people don't. I truly believe that most, maybe not most. I think many people will barely be able to tell the difference between right. a one and a one point five. I truly <laughs> don't think it's going to be that big a difference for normal people. I do think the VR capability exactly. would be the really big one. So, I mean,
2: I think th- I have to think technologically. That's why they're doing it. Even four K. I mean, I think at that point you're just doing four K again, probably a VR thing. Maybe makes it easier for some of your yeah, classes. Yeah, because games stuff. aren't um, going to be in four K. Well, right. no, yeah. of course not, no. because the, because the, the rendering stuff is ridiculous. But not only that, I mean. You know, 4K TV adoption is is, has gotten a lot higher because now they're they're a lot cheaper. But there's not a ton of content, even. So yeah, you know, you'll add it in there, and you can upres it. But it just becomes kind of a. I think you're right. I mean, people still to this day, most most people, like if you show them a really good HD TV, and like on an OLED display, or or even you know, a, a, an old school plasma that like like a Panasonic used to make these curio sets. If you've got it really well calibrated, you could show it to someone and tell them it's 4K, and they would totally believe you. <laughs> so I think you're right. So I so here's my question though, like talking just, just to, to finish the, the, from you guys' perspective, because again, I just look at this as a consumer. I hear what you're saying, that like people will get used to it, and I think you're probably right. But what does this do for the next cycle of of console releases? Yeah. Does, does, does this lead to consumer distrust? Because what I have to think is that historically, I mean, and this would be a, a big first where you're having kind of this 1.5 kind of bump where you're in a, in a lot of ways kind of saying... F you to your early adopters, who are the people who, frankly, are are the ones who help you, you know, um, get your costs down so that you can make a profit on those consoles down the line. So what does that do to that base, you know, like four or five years from now when you are actually about to release your next generation console? Do you you think that this is the sort of thing that would make consumers more weary about adopting a platform early on again? And if that's the case, what does that say about the future of consoles, which has already kind of been in question just because, you know – a lot of because of the way the gaming is changing in general.
1: Yeah, Christina, absolutely. You are beyond right to be skeptical about that. Now, you know, this isn't the first time this has been tried. Sega did it with the 32X, yes, which, was the, the, which was a huge failure historically. I mean, not, uh, and frankly, then that, that, that led not, to, you know, the, the Dreamcast, the Sega CD, which Sega, I love. 30, Sega CD the, failure. Dreamcast, well, it was th- some of the best games of all time, but ever, a failure. But yeah. The Saturn,
2: yeah, no, you're Saturn, right. The 32X yeah. was a was perfect example. That was designed by Sega North America to extend the life cycle of the Genesis. Yeah. And then yeah. it ended up pissing off consumers who then the Saturn comes out. They're like, but I just
1: bought this thing. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the, the game market is changing. You know, yeah. I love hardcore old school games. I've been playing the frack out of Overwatch. But the truth is and AAA gamers are not going to want to hear it. It just ain't the direction of our industry anymore, and there's not as much money on it it, as there (laughs) used to be. It's just a fact. There's a reason Konami is moving towards mobile games (laughs) and like have fines, like gambling games, make them more money. And they own Metal Gear and soccer, like PS soccer. that (laughs) That is really scary. And, Christine, you're dead on that this... Really runs a serious risk. Um, Like, look at Nintendo, because they've done this dance before, too. GameCube came out, failure. Like, some of the best games of all time. Some of the best games ever. The Wii kind of is. It was huge. It was huge, but. You know, it's also a historically kind of riding a trend that was going to happen. And the yeah. Wii U, I love it, but it's a failure. Oh, the Wii
2: U might, might in Nintendo.
1: Let's be very yeah. real. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Wii
2: U might, be, I mean, they've got another console coming and whatnot, but I mean, like, literally, yeah. like, at E3, from what I understand, like, they are literally only showing Zelda. Yeah.
0: Um, and that is and literally I love the only it thing that's so sad.
2: So I, mean, I, I think it's it, a really I, big I, and gamble. And I love Nintendo. Yeah. Like, the way I feel about Nintendo is the way I feel about Apple. Yeah. And, and so it's painful to watch, but you're dead on. And so I, I wonder, you know, Sony and Microsoft obviously have more diversified businesses, Microsoft more than Sony. But mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I fear if they don't handle this correctly, I and mean, that's going to be the key, they're going to have to handle this so right. And I also feel like even though it'll be tempting for them to sell the two models side by side so you can have a cheaper one, I wonder if down the line that's going to be a mistake. You should just sell the more powerful console.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: It
0: kind of begs the question: like, if they are releasing this like, a c- very, very considerably more powerful one, then why? I mean, I guess they're trying to get ahead of the the Neo. But I mean, that's kind of part of the reason that they're bringing this up now at all. They were going to wait, but then right. since Sony's pushing the PS4 Neo they're bringing these xboxes out sooner um i can't imagine that has much to do with like the actual release date of the hardware but um the announcement certainly um just like letting people know that it's happening and really you couldn't be too early with that considering how uh how people are reacting to it and will react to it i mean i wonder I obviously people are going to probably wait until this new hardware comes out if they were thinking about buying an Xbox One at the current moment. So that's kind of... Uh...
2: That's bad for them. That's bad for everybody because... the. I mean, I mean, I mean. This is, this is a known thing in the computer industry. It's called the Osborne effect, and and it's based on um you know the computer company Osborne Computers who announced their follow up machine um way too early in advance, and so no one bothered to buy the one that was actually on the market, and and the company wound up going out of business. And so that's always a real challenge for companies. You don't want to announce things too early, and so but but at the same time, you know the Sony stuff leaking. Microsoft obviously has to have has to be ready to respond but yeah I, I can't imagine any consumer who's plugged in in the slightest going to a GameStop or a Best Buy or Amazon and picking up a console between now and you know
0: yeah especially August. since like the
2: new one is just going basically going to be like a
0: smaller version of the current one with 4K so right. you know why yeah. why spend all the money for a bigger noisier machine exactly yeah. when you can wait till I, August
1: If I can say just one more thing on this you know, in our industry right now, as we are looking at VR, and by the way, it is not assured at all that there's going to be a consumer base to show up to buy all this awesome <laughs> VR technology. That's the reason VR capital has frozen at this point because the big investors are saying, you know what, we've made some bets, let's wait, we're gonna see some winners and losers. But some of the the technology I've seen that's really, really interesting does get around this problem that you do have to have such a, an immensely powerful system to to do this stuff and you know some of the solutions do it with you know cloud distribution others like have managed to get um, okay so you have an older computer like calculating light mass and loading ram and passing assets there then passing over to a specialized box to kind of, you know, figure out the frame rate in each eyeball, which is a very intensive thing. So I, I think that one way they could get around this without it being too fiddly would be, you know the the PlayStation and Xbox is it USB three or USB two? It's two. Yeah, that's that is a big bottleneck. But yeah, it is huge uh, one huge IO bottleneck because, yeah. because that was that was two thousand that was what two thousand six two thousand seven. Yeah, so yeah, that's hard to imagine getting around. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I'm trying to think like if you could have you do have things with USB three point that will like do mm-hmm. the calking on a lower you know power box and kind of get around this. So I, I think if there were a way to like upgrade some of the existing boxes, if they gave consumers that option or even even a mail-in service, I don't know. Like you've got to treat those original consumers with respect. That's the really, yeah, really. problem here.
2: No, I, that, I, I agree. I think is if they don't you have a very good chance of losing them
1: the next yeah. time
2: stuff runs yeah. around.
1: Well, losing our whole industry. I mean, PC totally. sales suck. You know, Steam sales are going down. AAA, there's less money in it all the time. I mean, it is—it's a scary time to be a game developer. (laughs) That's—it's just the truth. So, I hope it works out. (laughs) In conclusion,
0: screaming. (laughs) I think what we need right now is a reason to smile. (laughs) This great segue. (laughs) Oh, Simone, you are You are welcome. Gosh, this episode of Rocket is brought to you by Smile and the new Text Expander, which is simply indispensable. Imagine, if you will, take a moment, close your eyes, a deep breath through the nose, never having to type the same email address, chunk of code, slogan, marketing, copy, directions, or data... More than once. Imagine it. Imagine the freedom that your fingers ref- will feel. Imagine the the less um, likelihood that you'll get carpal tunnel one day. Smile does not claim to have an effect on your own medical health, but you know, imagine it if you will. With Text Expander, you can store all these bits of text as snippets. Activate them by a shortcut that you create and save time. Just. In everything that you do, in your work, in your personal life, if you're the kind of person who sends a ton of emails, sends a ton of text messages, as you probably are since you're listening to this show, you want those snippets in your life. You want those, that text to be called up at the touch of a finger and flung off into the ether where the data goes. <laughs> oh good lord (laughs) so yes with text expander you can harness the power of fill in the blank snippets to customize common responses so if you have an email that you send frequently but you need to change the name of the recipient for example that is super easy with text expander and you can also share groups of snippets with other people is that something you do at mashable christina with your since you i know you need to fill in like bits of articles and you have like
2: and yes. Things. I, have a, I have a whole text expander thing. I don't do it for people per se, mm-hmm. but um, you can like write little scripts if you wanted to do like a, a mail merge sort of thing. Like you, you could you could create scripts around that. I don't, but mm-hmm. you could.
0: Nice. Yeah. And if something changes, you just need to update it once and boom, you are ready exactly. to s- fill in those snippets all over again.
2: Text exp- What I do do is for my do outgoing, do. like for my signature, <laughs> what I, exactly what I do do. <laughs> so, so from my, my signature, I have a number of different email signatures, but sometimes if depending on like where I'm replying from, it might not like be accessible. And so I have a text expander thing that will have like my personal phone number and stuff rather than my office line, oh. which I don't answer. And so I have a text expander thing that, that says, you know, um, um, uh, PP in like personal phone number that'll just insert that re- re- replace the what would I normally have? That's super cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, we could make like a text expander shortcut saying, "Hey guys, I need 15 more minutes for rocket <laughs> you chat." do it.
0: You should oh, do god. it. Save
1: oh, hundreds of hours of typing every show.
0: Oh my god, that's so <laughs> real, Brianna. No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I need a text expander for my brain to just like. Fill in the things that I have to say, just common courtesies to people. But hey, there's the use <laughs> for it. Text expander includes apps for Mac, iPhone, iPad, and now Windows. Currently in beta, so cross-platform. No matter where you are, you'll have access to your your beloved snippets on all of your devices. Um, yeah, there are discounts available now for registered Text Expander users, and you can get team subscriptions too. So if you are in a situation where you know your whole Office or whatever needs to use Text Expander, have those snippets filled in for the work that you do. Totally possible. Organization focused snippet management, um, consolidated billing, all that service is provided by Smile, who is wonderful and kind. And we really, truly do love them. Like we. Working with them is really awesome and we really appreciate the things that they make and we hope you do too. If you want to boost that productivity of yours, go to smilesoftware.com rocket today and check out what we've got there. Thank you so much to Smile for sponsoring Rocket and FM. Love them.
1: You know, Love if them. like I had a flat tire on the side of the road. I would just hope that there would be a smile employee driving by because they would <laughs> totally. definitely help you. Like they're they very would definitely nice help people. you out, yeah. and,
2: and they'd be able to do it like in, in an easy to do way. They'd be able to, 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 to they'd be able to fill out the form that you yes. needed to file with AAA, like yeah. to, to get you know your your discount or whatever. And they'd be able to like send off a quick text with all the information about where to find you. It's um, true. Use snippets yeah. to fill your tires. And the snippets of exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying, guys. I'm trying. No, you. You did it. You did
1: good. You're succeeding. You're succeeding. Oh.
0: All right, let's take a rapid detour into intrigue, I guess. So a lot of news uh, came out today. It was confirmed that Peter Thiel, um, who is a hedge fund, a big money man in Silicon Valley, that was the most simplified explanation of Peter Thiel in the world. And Christina, I swear, we'll go into it more in depth (laughs) later. Uh, He funded Hulk Hogan's case against Gawker, the defamation lawsuit that Hulk Hogan filed against Gawker after they published a sex tape of his and he was that the same thing where he used the sl- that slur or was yes, that a is. different thing
2: good lord he no, he just went all no, no, no. in all in on the racism well, and the e- Yeah, it wasn't in the tape that Gawker published, but it was in a subsequent tape that was also obtained that Gawker did not publish and that was part of the discovery evidence It pertaining to that lawsuit was somehow leaked to the National Enquirer. And then Hulk Hogan has additionally claimed that Gawker intentionally leaked that. Gawker says, of course, they didn't because it was under seal. Who knows? Um, but yes, that was all part of the same, but, but the reason that we, that the Hulk Hogan ironically is no longer working for the WWE is because of the, the sex tape lawsuit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And this all, uh, this funding of the lawsuit, one would ask, why is someone from Silicon Valley funding Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against a New York media publication? Well,
2: <laughs> well, it
0: turns out. It seems like, yeah, go into it. it, it go it, hard. I was going to
2: say, it, it, it seems like a conspiracy theory. And in fact, um, that that's something that that uh, Andrew Ross Sirkin who wrote the story for the Times tonight, that that confirms and in interviews Teal on the record, confirming that he did in fact back the lawsuit and and was was kind of the one who was you know paying for for all of it. Um, people thought it was a conspiracy theory that people who were upset with with Gawker's coverage and and didn't like it would would um you know people with a lot of money would would get involved, but no, that's actually the case. Um, he has per- previously um to a um. A, in, in an interview, referred to Gawker, at, or that then Valleywag, which was, was one of Gawker's blogs, as the Al Qaeda. Uh, of, uh, of websites um, and then when pushed back which I know which when pushed back when said isn't that a little extreme comparing Valley Walk to terrorism he said no what they do is terrorism and mm-hmm. has he has a very serious distaste for, for Gawker probably um, dating back to uh, a 2007 article that Owen um, Thomas wrote um, saying um, Peter Thiel is gay everyone uh, which um, brought to, to mainstream attention the fact that, that, that Peter Thiel is a gay man he is now openly gay but at the time it was one of those, those things that, that people in the know knew and that he wasn't necessarily closeted. At least that's Owen Thomas' argument. But it was one of those things that wasn't discussed publicly because there was still a perception that, you know, people, billionaires who are running hedge funds and investing in Facebook um, shouldn't be gay. There was a stigma there that, that Owen Thomas didn't feel needed to, be, needed to exist, so he wrote an article Hmm. Peter Thiel was very upset about it. He's been subsequently he claims very upset by kind of the bullying culture of, of, of Gawker, which okay, fair. Um, but um, to kind of at this point, um, he says um, to to to, New, to the New York Times, he said that that uh, Gawker published articles that were very painful and paralyzing for people who were targeted. I thought it was worth fighting back. Um, and he said, I didn't really want to do anything. I thought it would do more harm than good. He talked about, you know, originally bringing uh, funding lawsuits against them. But one of my friends convinced me that if I didn't do something, nobody would. Hmm. So he's now kind of positioning himself as saying, well, I have um, basically endless capital. So what basically happened was what we found out is that the, the lawsuit that Hulk Hogan filed, which he did win, it is it is awaiting appeal, um, was was not funded by, by Hulk Hogan. Uh, but by, by by Peter Thiel, um, largely it seems because not so much because Peter Thiel had any. It doesn't it doesn't read from 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 his interview with uh, with the New York Times as if he was very upset on behalf of Hulk Hogan, who let's also be very very real is, is probably not one of those injured parties, you know, that, that he's referring to people who can't fight <laughs> back because Paul Colgan has resources himself. Um, yeah. But instead it seems like he's taking that as an opportunity to um, get a huge judgment against a media company and put the media company out of business.
0: It's yeah. one yeah. of those mean, situations revenge. where everything is so messy that like, it's so yep. hard to talk about because I mean he <sighs> oh, I, this point of like, yeah, it's very bad. What the There have been definitely instances like where I've been upset with Gawker, like the incident last Year
2: where they added someone, right? Well, exactly. Last year, when, and that led to a staff exodus because Nick Denton actually fought back and said we shouldn't have written that article. Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think here, here's what's really interesting about this case and why it's worth talking about is that nobody here looks good. No, there's, no. there's not a winner in this. A is Peter Thiel is a misogynist and a, a Trump delegate.
0: Not that we're getting political. And then Gawker no, is Gawker. and, and Gawker
2: Gawker. Yep, um, <laughs> right. And,
1: yeah, and, and I feel some- like there aren't really any clear there's no clear <laughs> opinion you can come to here except for it's a mess i would say this is very fashionable in a lot of my you know kind of feminist spheres to really hate gawker which is something gamergate also does which is very ironic to me yeah you know, i always i always feel like this is really unfair because i know so many excellent journalists that work for the entire, for the larger Gawker umbrella. Mm -hmm. Simone, I love Polygon. I think you guys do some of the best journalism. Like we talked about author tonight. He's a fantastic journalist, but I think some really fantastically talented journalists also work for Kotaku, which is part of the Gawker brand. I totally agree. I think one of the best journalists working today is Anna Merlin over at Jezebel. Like, she goes out, she has hardcore news reporting about, you know, really serious, like, rape cases and things like that. Interviews people, gets them on the public record, does very traditional, you know, crime reporting. She is paid by Gawker Media. So I feel like taking this absolutist position that, like, everything (laughs) Gawker does is bad and tainted, needs to be destroyed, is just Kind of a, yeah. a view by a child for children.
0: I think when you're you looking know. at this, like, who has the most people, like, who who could be injured the most and be the most vulnerable? It's probably the, the journalists under the Gawker umbrella, yeah. some of which yeah. are at
2: Gawker. I, I would actually argue that that's actually not even the journalists. I would say the people who argue the most are readers and people who are out there for the truth, because you might not agree with what they publish, but... But whether you're sued or not, should should come under. Does something violate? Is is it illegal? Is it a lie? Is it libel? Is it slander? Um, Not. Is it truth? I mean, and ultimately, whether you agree with them or not, most of what they publish, you know, they go through a lot of, of processes of checking. And, and granted, they don't follow some of the conventional journalism principles, and, and and their, you know, ethical lines are different than some other publications. Like, they would publish things that the New York Times would never publish, they would publish things that Mashable would never publish. But that doesn't mean that those things aren't worthy of being published. And I have to say, as a journalist, I'm bothered by the fact that someone um, would covertly fund this sort of thing with the express purpose of shutting down a, a news organization because you don't like what they publish. I mean that's that kind of that that raises a lot of first Amendment questions that I think are very interesting and I think become when you look at Peter Thiel's background and why we're talking about this on on a tech podcast become very important because he has become, you know, even though we're not a political show, he brings politics into some of his things oh, his yeah. his company his company Palantir, you know, wow. does a lot of work with big military and and so there are a lot of contradictions in who Peter Thiel is as a person he's you know a, a, um, a gay rights activist who's also a libertarian who supports Donald Trump who you know um, gave money to Ted Cruz who um, is very religious in ways that don't often um, align with some of his other beliefs who is very conservative in some ways who abhors the government but yet um, in, in this case is, is not uh, <laughs> Going against using huge, the legal like, system,
1: like military surveillance outfit for B- completely data mining. right, precisely. Yeah, he runs right. a military oh. surveillance outfit,
2: but he's oh. anti-government. I mean, he's a man of many contradictions, and and I mean, I think that this is one where. Uh, you know, they pointed out he's given money to First Amendment causes before and protecting what he considers the freedom of the press. But as my colleague Seth Fiekerman wrote um, in a profile of, of him that went up today before the, the confirmation was was, uh, was announced, uh, before the New York Times article did, you know, um, it seems like he wants to you – know, he, he claims he wants to kind of, you know, um, follow the rules or whatever as long as the rules apply to him. Yeah. So he kind of wants to, to write the rules in his own image. You know, he 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 likes to to go against the grain, and it's fine to be a contrarian. But but a lot of his um, a lot of things that that happen, or excuse me, a lot of the things that he stands for are very contradictory. And and I think this is one of those interesting cases where it's it's damaging. I think for for media in general. Um, when these sorts of things happen, now this isn't to say that he doesn't have the right to fund any lawsuit that he wants to fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he does. What troubles me is the fact that this didn't come out until now, um, and, and that it was secret. There used to be laws that would actually prevent what happens now, which is letting people kind of you know secretly fund things. And, and my problem with that, and I'm, again, I'm not a lawyer, but, but but I do enjoy the law, is, is that I almost wonder if, if it you know prevents people from facing their accusers because in yeah. this case, you know, even though Hulk Hogan, Terry Belay brought the lawsuit against Gawker. It's being paid for and engineered in many respects by Peter Thiel. Yeah. But rather than suing, P- suing them directly, he's acting as a proxy. And if you're Gawker, I feel like even even if you hate everything they stand for, they have a right to address the person who's actually behind it and, and not, not the puppet, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I do have to say, though, like for me, I, I have had people come to me and offer to let me pay to pay for lawsuits basically. Like sure. One example, um, I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to vote this year. I'm I'm not, because right. if I do my new address is on the the record. And you know, there there's a lawyer that came to me a while back and said like, because I was talking about this, they're like, we're thinking about you know doing legislation against A, B, and C and we would like to pay for this for you and it was a, a person that was rather well off. And I looked at it and decided that, like, a public fight in the media was not something I was interested in. But it does make sense that you have some people that have these cases that would make good case law for, like, interested parties for those to get funded. Like, that does happen all the time, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't have any... It's really clear to me that, like, with him speaking to the Times, like as we're recording to the show, it really comes off as a Bond villain, like, "Ha yeah. ha, Mr. Bond, eat my revenge!" Like, it's the way it comes off; it just makes him look terrible. But I don't, I, I, I think this is such a common practice; it doesn't surprise me at all. I, I, I think you're right, though. That has a very, it, it's mm-hmm. terrifying. That a billionaire could get pissed off at your media organization and choose to destroy you. Yeah, like that and is I realize really that this scary. probably
0: would only happen to an organization like Gawker realistically, but then also like if you apply it to any website, it's
2: like that is horrifying. If it could have... well, here's the thing. I mean, the whole point of the First Amendment is that you protect the speech that you hate the most. Yeah. Yeah. that's the whole point yeah. of it. I mean, honestly, I mean that, that that's the whole point is that is that the fact. Yes, of course, that it's only going to affect places like Gawker, but those are the people who need the protection the most of the First Amendment. If we are going to live in a country where yeah. the First Amendment is as it stands, now again, this isn't to say you know. And the problem is, of course, is that even though Gawker will probably win on appeal, you know, um, at least so, so some of their accounts, you know, with them with, um, w- when judges look over the case, the fact that he has other lawsuits pending, I mean, makes it very clear that his goal at the end of the day is to put a company, a media organization, out of business because yeah. he disagrees with what they publish. And that's troubling to me when you're someone who also invests in tech companies, who also invests in technology, who has a big history of things, that, that this is the sort of person that that's what they're doing. That's That's troubling in the same way that people are often troubled by you know, um, big-moneyed um, entrepreneurs investing in media organizations and they worry about bias. To me, this is far more troubling than Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post is Peter Thiel deciding, I have infinite resources and I'm going to file <laughs> as many lawsuits against Gawker as I can because yeah. they wrote things about me or my friends that it I don't like. It was a like.
0: slow day at the office filing some billion-dollar lawsuits against media companies. Why not? <laughs> so I what my curiosity here, because I – apparently missed some big happenings at PayPal around the time that Elon Musk left. Uh what the heck is the PayPal mafia that every article <laughs> keeps mentioning?
2: Yeah. So, so it's a group of kind of the, the, the five guys that were very heavily involved with the founding of PayPal. So that included Elon Musk and, and Peter Thiel, who were the co-founders, Max Levchin, who was also there very early. Um, it also included uh, uh, Reed uh, Hoffman, who, who went on to go to LinkedIn, and and I think somebody else whose name I can't remember. And they were kind of considered like the, the orchestrators of PayPal. And so they were kind of like these wonderkins who were able to turn this payments company into something that was, you know, um, they, they, they raised a lot of money and then were acquired by eBay and have become a core Institution to how everything has happened. But the mafia part, it came into kind of what they've done post PayPal because most of them, because they made so much money, have gone on to found other companies. You know, Elon Musk is obviously the most visible member of the PayPal mafia because he's Elon Musk. But Peter Thiel, even though um, this is probably the first time many of our listeners have ever heard his name, you know, he was an early investor in in, in, in Facebook and and as I said, Palantir is is a BFD and Founders Fund, which is his hedge fund, makes a lot of big investments. Um, you know, Reid Hoffman went on to do LinkedIn, and, and Max Levchin um, did a, I can't remember the name of his startup, but it was acquired by by Google or somebody for for quite a bit of money. He's he's gone on to do quite a quite a lot of things too. So it was just kind of you know this this name for this club of of these startup guys who are all at PayPal who have gone on to be very successful and very influential in Silicon Valley.
1: Okay. I, I I think I would say this though, Christina, that I I I think if you read his money quote from the Times, uh, I think that he is trying to give a, a pushback on a very specific kind of very hurtful journalism. In this case, you know. He was someone who just figured his sex life and sexual orientation was his own business. He didn't want it to be part of his public um, and business like world and preferred to keep it to himself. And even though there was no public interest whatsoever, um, you know, basically Gawker came through and and outed him, which is something that, you know, by the way, Breitbart does all the time to people. Things are technically true. And they come through and just kind of maliciously publish this this gossip. And you know, those old you know, those journalistic standards, like is this in the public interest? Those exist for a reason. Like the Hulker, the the the, <laughs> sorry, the Hulk Hogan sex tape had no public interest whatsoever that did no one any good other than I,
2: I, I don't i don't know if i agree with that
1: i feel because like of the racism part of it or uh, no the racism yeah. wasn't
2: actually part of it that was that okay. was a different thing that wasn't revealed no i would okay. actually argue he's a celebrity he is a public figure the same way i would argue that peter teal is a public figure and i would say that in its in its own scape that 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 hulk hogan who especially the fact that he had a reality show that displayed him as being kind of a perfect family man is meanwhile you know, sleeping with his best friend's wife. The You know, there there, there are certain um, uh, arguments I think you could make that even though it might not be the best story and, and the best thing to watch, that there's certainly um, news value there. Would, would, would it be something that, that that I would ever publish? No. But it's not something that I would say would, would be any less newsworthy than any other celebrity sex tape, which many, many, many websites publish all the time.
1: Um, but was, what would was, the pushback be on that kind of editorial choice? Because I can't think of another way to kind of push back on that that's not well, a mean, very expensive lawsuit?
2: I, I don't know. But I mean, I, I think that that's what comes down to kind of the First Amendment question, which is exactly what, what, what Gawker is fighting for, which again, I mean, I think I'm, I'm a First Amendment absolutist. Uh, and, and in the same way, I'm kind of a, a – this is how I feel about free speech. I'm kind of a, a, a ride or die on that. And, sure. and, and even with speech that I detest, I almost feel like that's the important stuff you have to protect. And so I, I do I, – I would I would I would disagree that there wasn't there wasn't news value, um, because he was a public figure and, and it, it was kind of drawing, you know, um interesting and, and for him obviously uncomfortable parallels between his, his personal life and his public persona. But but that it is what it is, you know. Um I, th- I think that you're right. Um, you know, there 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 are I think that the the, the threshold is obviously much lower when you're not a public figure. Um, I think what's interesting with the Hulk Hogan case too, which they didn't get into, you know, in the trial, which which was what Gawker was not allowed to, to ask questions about, was how the tape was even given to them, and it, and it seems as if it was sold by you know the person who who was his then friend, yeah. and 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 that becomes you know to me like a, a different level of barrier, which is if you're, if you're recording this and and you know you own this property and what. There, there are a lot of issues there, but, but I think you're right. And I think even with the, with the outing scenario where I totally am against outing people whatsoever and I think it's terrible and I don't support it, I don't think that Peter Thiel can make the argument that his sexual orientation is immaterial insofar as his political contributions, the people he supports, the causes he stands for, the boards he sits on, and where does that – what does that mean if you're going to be supporting someone like Ted Cruz? Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and being a gay person. I would
0: almost say that the gay aspect doesn't matter to me. What matters is, again, like the Ted Cruz connect, not the Ted Cruz specifically connection, but the political connection and then how that, again, ties into his role in the tech industry.
2: Right. Yeah. I would agree. And, and and so I but so I guess my point is that, you know, he, he argues that I'm a private person and in my personal life shouldn't be part of anything. And I would say by the very nature of how much money you have and the influence you have over one of the biggest industries in our world and one of the biggest growing industries in our world and your role in Silicon Valley means that actually your personal life does matter. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that everybody will feel that way. And, I, and I'm not saying, again, that I would have published the things they published because I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have written those things. That's not the sort of journalism I do. But I, I do – think that there is a news argument to be made for some of those things. Um, it's, that doesn't mean that you, again, can't, can't sue. And to your point where I mean, I think you're right. I think that that is maybe the only way to, to put pushback. My fear though, is that when you silence the most harmful, the most distasteful speech, you end up having um, an effect where all speech ends up becoming diluted um, and, and people become afraid of, to publish things because you do look, I mean, you know, not, not, not that they're in any way comparable, but you look, you know, People have tried to Mother Jones. This is actually a, a great correlation. Mother Jones was sued um, and and has now had to. They, they've incurred six hundred and fifty thousand dollars in legal fees. Um, that they've had a deficit for their yearly budget. They their their insurance company has spent more than two and a half million dollars because because they published factual information about a donor to Mitt Romney's campaign back in twenty twelve and what his history was with with gay rights and and he was publicly um, and, and he had a history of being very anti gay rights and then it kind of come around. It was a very weird case. Anyway, they they were in a protracted lawsuit for three and a half years with them, it, and in the company, the guy who was funding it, you know, this bi- this billionaire in Idaho, you know, is trying to put them out of business. And everything they did that was not journalism that is Gawker worthy at all. It was straight up good investigative reporting. And this guy had a history of doing that with with someone else. There was um, a 26 year old reporter uh, for for a, like a twenty thousand person newspaper in Idaho who broke a huge story about um, a pedophile. Um, a, 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 a boy scout leader, and it became like a Pulitzer Prize-winning story, like it became a huge story. And because he, um, this uh, this this guy who who sued Mother Jones didn't like, um, the fact that the, the boy scouts were being dragged through the mud, and, and the fact that Idaho looked bad, he started trying to, to sue that reporter, and in fact, try to sue him even during the Mother Jones case. And so, I guess what what worries me is the bigger picture thing: is that even if you agree with Peter Thiel, that what Gawker does and what they publish is, is wrong, um, letting this sort of thing happen means that there's legitimate newsworthy articles that are the victims of these things, too. And I think those cases, I wish we were talking about the Mother Jones case right now and not the Gawker case because yeah. that's a much yeah. easier one to defend. Yeah. But I feel yeah. like from just a, a big picture standpoint, there's not a difference.
1: Yeah, I, I just, you know, before we move on for this talk, I just want to really be clear to so the audience. I don't, please don't read my comments as like supporting Peter Thiel. Oh, no, no, or, no. Or, or, you know, supporting Gawker. I think it's, um, you know, I think this is a very complex case. And there's, it's like we said at the beginning, there's no good guy here. I, w- I would say this. I'm very, very empathetic to everything that you've just said, Christina. I would also say this, that to a certain point, it does not matter what the big publications do because when you have these, when you have Twitter, we have HN, we have Encyclopedia Dramatica, when you have all these things with no editorial oversight Mm -hmm. and no mission, but to destroy people, um, you know, that, that information is going to get out there anyway. So I think given that, I think it just really emphasizes, you know, the, um, the importance of having journalists that can publish things that are true, even if they upset very rich people.
0: Yeah, no matter what your feelings on any of the specific actors in this case, like it is, this is like an example case that I think we can look at and say there are a lot of extremes meeting here, and the outcome is going to be very important. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Blue Apron. Yay! Yay! Oh my God. <laughs> For the yes. third week in a row, we're going to bring you the Love gospel. Them. Of Blue Apron and how they are going to help you cook food in your home. Make incredible home-cooked meals accessible to even the people with the least time. (laughs) Like
1: our very own Brianna Wu. Oh, my God. So you saw some of the stuff I made this week. I did. I wanted to die. Oh. (laughs) Oh, okay. So I have to tell you tonight. Like, I was like, oh, I've got 30 minutes before Rocket. Let me just whip something up. So we got new Blue Apron. I opened it up and I literally made one of the best meals I've ever eaten in my life. It was just like chopping up spinach and cooking it in a little bit of oil and... Mixing like fresh garlic in there and like pesto and crepes. And it was so, oh my God, I love it. it sounds and, like, so good. I, I gave it to my husband. He's like, Bree, you're becoming the most awesome cook. And I'm like, I'm <laughs> just following like the four steps that they sent to my house. Like I'm not, I'm not even that good. But oh my well, God, you are. I love You're so, learning,
0: you're learning about flavor profiles and you're exploring
1: I, new that's foods. That's it. So I have to tell you, this weekend we are going to the biggest arcade the entire world and we are getting an airbnb there for this gorgeous like place and we are bringing all the blue apron with us so i can like cook meals all weekend for my husband like while we're chilling there and going to this giant arcade during the day it's gonna be great
0: i'm insanely jealous just because that sounds like the most wonderful relaxing thing ever and like you're probably Saving a lot of money by bringing the blue apron rather than like going out to a ton of different restaurants. Exactly.
1: Right. (sighs) That was actually something we were thinking about because, like, you get a cool Airbnb. It's like, uh, we actually went up to the like $200 a night place with the hot tub because, you know, that $50 that we would be spending on going out. I'm like, no, I'll just cook dinner at the kitchen. It's going to be awesome. That's so nice. You can see like all the, we're going to link to this in the show notes, all the awesome stuff I've been making. Yeah. Because it really is good. And it's so much fun to do.
0: Scour your Twitter for pictures. So for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron will deliver you all the ingredients that you need for a a chosen recipe. You can assemble all those fresh, high-quality ingredients into a delicious home-cooked meal in 40 minutes or less. And as our very own Brianna Wu, speed cooking champion of the world can (laughs) attest. It really is like that easy to throw together a meal in that amount of time. They like the ingredients are all properly proportioned and everything. You just have to, you know, get them all together, follow those steps on the recipe. And then, Plate it and there, you know, you can plate it how you want. You can plate it up all fancy. You can just toss it in like a trough as you know, I do with my meals and put (laughs) it directly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) just lower my face directly into the delicious food. And you can customize your recipes weekly, you know, based on what your dietary preferences are. They have, like, all kinds of seasonal recipes and ingredients that come through, which is really awesome. And that's something that you generally only get in a super fancy restaurant, but you can get it in your kitchen. And you can choose deliveries, like, based on your needs. Like, say you just need meals for those three days a week
1: that you really, really don't
0: have a lot of time. Bam. Blue apron. Done. Done.
1: Done. Done. Yeah. And the quality of stuff they ship to your house is so good. Like it's always the very best meat I've ever had. It's always like the very best lemon I've ever eaten in my life. Like that's that's the real secret to this. Like it's not just like giving you pretty easy to follow instructions with like gorgeous pictures to go along with that, but like everything they send you is like the absolute best that it could be. So it's I, I I honestly like the quality of stuff is so high that sometimes I do the math of what it would cost me to buy it at the grocery store. And like, it's like you're just getting all this stuff for free. Like it's it's a really good deal financially.
0: Mm-hmm. They have really high standards. They work with a lot of artisanal suppliers and family run farms and fisheries and ranchers. So people like that. So you really you could you're doing something good. For the world and for your body, which will be full of delicious food that you will be proud of. And you will take pictures and you will post them on Instagram. <laughs> You'll send them to us on Twitter. So, yeah, if you want to check out Blue Apron, do go to blueapron.com rocket. You can look at this week's menu and get two meals free with free shipping. Oh, my God. At that address. Blueapron.com slash rocket. Thank you so much, Blue Apron, for your support of our show, for your support of Brianna Wu's digestive system, and for your support of Real AFM. Oh, we love you.
1: Send me, send me pictures. Rocket people, I want to see what you're cooking so I can compare who's better at like, cooking this stuff. So, <laughs> so take pictures and send it to me. It's so much fun.
0: Everyone loves food pictures. Thank you. All right. Should we talk about some Twitter updates?
1: Let's do it. I'm
0: psyched. Oh. Are we psyched? Me too. Or how psyched? I'm, I'm psyched. On a scale, yeah. I'm psyched. Yeah. All right. Wait,
1: how many tweets do you have now, Simone? Are you a high volume tw- Twitter tweeter yet? <laughs>
0: like, I, I don't think I am. I actually... I, since I started working at Polygon, I don't go on Twitter as much
2: just because I'm so head down. Which is okay, sad. so you've tweeted 20,700 um, times. Okay, in, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> that's a lot. Since so yeah. August 2009. Now, Bree, I'm going to pull you up and see... Um, you tweeted, more than that. yeah. You tweeted sixty thousand um, two hundred times. Jeez. Um, but I'm pretty sure I win. I'm confident. Yeah, I win. Yeah. Um, I've, I've tweeted seventy seven thousand two hundred times. Oh. oh my gosh. Oh. Now, in fairness, I have been on Twitter since November first, two thousand seven. Brie, you have been there since uh, November two thousand eight. So I've got a year on
1: you. Yeah, but I didn't even use it till
2: app.net died. I was going to like, say yeah. exactly. So 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 honestly, you. I, I was going to say. I remember you were. You were a very high-volume app.net user. Um, okay. Uh, S- Simone, you joined 2009. So we're all fairly high-volume um, Twitter users. I was really betting on for, for you to be over 100 ki I'm No, uh, yeah. no, no. Um, I'm very glad that I might my, my, – my goal is to keep it so that I've tweeted fewer times than I have followers. Like, I don't – it used to be <laughs> kind of the inverse. And once I, like, acque- reached equilibrium where I had more followers than I had tweets, like, I felt like all was right in the world. <laughs> Only the premium but, content for your right. masses. Well, well, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I have to. I mean, look, I have to. I do have to say, my my best Twitter moment probably of the year of 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 twenty sixteen was me live tweeting, um, bring it on mm-hmm. on Netflix. That was that was pretty epic, I have to say.
0: You know, I probably had more, but I uh, went through and I deleted a lot of things from
1: college. <laughs> oh, but, but like, I mean, Twitter's updates here. You know, they make a lot of sense because, like, Christina, you and I used a lot of app.net. I used a little more than mm-hmm. you, but, you, did. <laughs> you know, like, it is really hard to squeeze content into everything. And, like, Twitter's exactly. uh, new changes is going to make it so you don't have to put a dot between an at reply to, like, make sure everybody sees it.
2: Actually, yeah. it's not for at replies. It's for messages that start with a username. The, the so start replies, the chain. Yeah, sorry. About so, so that. the start yeah. of the chain. Yeah, no, no, right. because I made the mistake too. So Right.
1: So, like, I was tweeting Mashable's uh, fantastic Peter Thiel story tonight, and I had to put a dot in front of that. Mm-hmm. So, so, it would right. like everyone be able to see it besides yeah. just the person that runs the I'll, Mashable
0: account. I'll run down some of the biggest changes. So, uh, yeah. at names no longer
2: count towards the 140 character count, which is brilliant. Frankly, yeah, and it, it'll be and it'll be up to sixteen, I believe, is is, is the number of users oh, you can fantastic. have. So you could add 16, 17 people, and that won't count against it. What will count is if you reply to someone's big list and you add other people, those people you add will count against the limit. But the original we, chain that starts, we need like a flow chart for it. this. I know,
0: yeah. And I then know, photos, GIFs, videos, etc. those also no longer count as characters within the tweet, which is wonderful because I can't tell this you how many times I've, like, constructed a perfect tweet and then added my photo and then been I like, added a photo, and all of a sudden you're like, you can't do it. Yeah. Yep. My jokes ruined. And that, as we know, it is totally the point is. of Twitter. <laughs> uh, and then you can retweet and quote tweet yourself. So create those chains yep. more easily. And then,
2: like Brie Links said, also do- oh, go on. And, and links also don't count against uh, your limit, which is a big oh, one. Oh, fantastic. Because, <laughs> oh, you know, so you, 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 you always lose 12 characters yep. for, for for shortened URL, always. And and it's great that you can have links, but th- there are a lot of times where, you know, I, I have to, like, quote my tweet. You know, when I craft a tweet around mm-hmm. the story, I have to kind of, like, look. And I'm like, I've got to get this link in because that's the whole point. But You know, I'm losing 12 characters. So basically every every brand and media company and journalist is just like, oh,
0: I know when when this news came out, our social media manager was like, oh, my God, (laughs) she was having (laughs) the best day of her life.
2: (laughs) <laughs> oh, totally. Because because when media people tweet, like you you have both the URL and you have the photo, so you've got two URLs that are taking up your space, mm-hmm. right? And your jokes. So, cause of course. a lot, of, well, at least that's how we do it at Mashable. Even though there's usually a URL embedded into the thing, sometimes you want to add a, or not a URL, a photo embedded into the you know the the, the the Twitter card for the for the URL. We often tweet with images too, mm-hmm. and if you do both of those things, then it takes up even more space. And so maybe you can get the headline in, but then nobody could add a comment. Um, I also like that you can now retweet yourself and quote. Mm hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, how many Christina, how many controversies have happened to media outlets this year because they're trying to shorten their headlines enough for Twitter? and then it ends up like dropping accuracy or ends up just being like a little insensitive and then like they've got a huge scandal on their hands because I can think of like four examples off the top of my head. And and, and that's
2: just this year. I mean it's been something that's been plaguing it for a while and I have to say what I like about these changes um, is that you know when when they were first talking about getting rid of the 140 character limit everybody rightfully freaked out and we talked about it on Rocket and obviously you know 140 characters is you know being quick and being you know uh, know, having brevity is a big part of Twitter but but that doesn't mean that um, you know Twitter was founded in, in 2006 and the whole reason that it has a 140 character limit isn't because of any sort of like ideological thing oh you know short short messages are better it was because this was before the iPhone and the way that most people were going to interact with it they thought was through SMS and SMS yeah. has a has a character limit and so th- that's what it was designed around and so I think that you can keep the the essence of the 140 characters of content but not have at names count, um, not have links, um, you know, or, or media things count against your limit, and, and that way you can get the most out of, of out of that 140. The
0: things characters. that the the things that you need to construct your conversation in a way so it has context and meaning, like at names, links, etc. Those things shouldn't count towards like the the words obviously that you're putting out there that right. are the real meat of that conversation. So I think it's that. Change is brilliant. There has been a lot of stir that I have seen in the Twitter sphere about basically this change. the 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 period in f- taking away the yeah. period in front of the at means that conversations uh, could be more easily surfaced. Like whereas before, if you wanted to just tweet at someone and have it not appear on everyone's feed, you just right. tweet with their name in front. It doesn't show up on everyone's feed, um, right? This takes that functionality away. What do you guys think about the
2: the stir over that? I think it's kind of much to do about nothing. Yeah. Because I think that people who are going to monitor you are gonna monitor you and people are gonna see it are gonna see it. And if you wanna subtweet someone, then don't use the rat handle.
1: Yep. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know this sounds terrible, but like the truth is like when you have a lot of followers, you tend to like people talk to you generally, exactly. do you know what I mean? Or you're replying <laughs> to a general status That's, they've made. Absolutely. So, like, uh, I, 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 yeah, part of it is politeness too, because you don't yeah. want to like make it public for a bunch of people to see. So, I don't right, know. Which I think
2: is why it's good that replies are still yeah. not going to
1: be visible to everyone,
2: and 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 it, it, it's just when you start a tweet, you know, with someone's handle. Um, and I don't know how many, I don't know how many circumstances there are where, um, you know. That I, I'm not even sh- sure how common that is, other than just wanting to to save characters, frankly, and, and not say, so, you know, space at whatever just wrote this. Um, you know, usually I, I add, like, a superlative or, or some sort of, like, a couple of words instead of saying, like, great job at, you know, S. Fiegerman on your Peter Thiel profile. Yeah. You know, like, rather than saying, you know, at Seth Fiegerman wrote this great profile. Yeah. Now I could just say, at Seth Fiegerman wrote this great profile. Yeah. But I don't know how often, and, and maybe this is different for other people, I don't use those things that often, though. And so, you know, oftentimes where where the dot reply will still become useful is if you are actually doing a reply. Yeah. People will still be able to do that. Or, even better, you can now quote or retweet your replies so that everyone will see it so you can do your Mm -hmm. reply and then if you wanted to give it you know visibility you could retweet it um which i think is
1: cool yeah definitely i i have to ask you though christina like do you think twitter has made you a better writer because i think it's made me a much stronger writer and the reason i say that is like I mean, not even like the the longer pieces I write for media, but like even as a game writer, if you look at like the script for Rev 60 or the work I do professionally, it's generally like a sentence or two of very punchy, funny dialogue. And there's Mm -hmm. no point in our game where you have more than three sentences. I think Twitter, like we critique it a lot for like, you know, taking away attention spans or this or that. But I think it really, I think, A lot about haikus and how that was an art form, and then I think about how much more popular tweeting is and getting 140 characters in a way that is viral and that people respond to. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. a swear to God art. Totally, I think 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 even though it wasn't like their intention,
0: like the result is still that people have learned to say things in a way that is so funny and so witty. I love, I love Twitter humor.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I would say I've always been kind of a verbose writer, but I've definitely gotten better about that over years. I don't know if Twitter has played a role in that, but it certainly helps. I mean, and it certainly helps with, um, I will say with, with headline writing, even though at Nashville, our trend has actually been to go towards longer headlines, which, you know, maybe this new limit dropping drop the URL, um, uh, you know, accounting against you, what it will help with. But yeah, it's certainly, you know, you, you think about things and, and, and I think I, I don't, I, I don't write in tweets, but I, I definitely think I agree with you that I think that It's always good to have um, constraints because I think you can get your best work that way. Whether they're artificial or not, I think that that can be a a really good exercise. And so having those sorts of limits that the Twitter offers, um, and there is kind of an art form for a good tweet. And and it's amazing how much information can be transmitted in just 140 characters.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you guys use Hemingway app ever?
1: I don't know what that is.
2: Oh, that, that, that's one of those, uh, that's one of those uh, distraction-free writing apps, right? It's
0: actually, so What it is distraction-free pretty much,
2: except it's in your,
0: I guess it is in your browser. So, you know, you could get distracted, but basically you can put text in it and it will tell you where a sentence can be split in two, where a sentence is too long and confusing. Oh, yeah, and then you can yeah. see yeah. what grade level, uh, what reading level that you're writing at. Oh, so no. it's really useful for <laughs> editing. Um, yeah yeah, Hemingway it's named after Ernest Hemingway obviously say what you will about him but his prose was very clean Um, it was yeah I do enjoy I I know a few people at Polygon that use it to just be like to get kind of it it gives you another perspective on your sentences that you might only get if you're reading it out loud or I don't know if you take a break and come back to it later so yeah brevity the soul of wit as a great man once said I think it was Shakespeare was it Shakespeare does Shakespeare say that
1: I, I don't. Maybe know. Maybe I made it. <laughs> maybe I said it. Maybe yeah, I can take credit yeah, for that. I think that was Simone de Rushforth that said I'm that. I'm going
0: <laughs> he did say it. Oh yeah, it was in Hamlet to Polonius, of course. Um, anyway, but it was
1: ironic, of course.
0: So that was today's show. Yeah. Uh, what are we up to this week, Brianna?
1: Okay. First of all, I am so frakin' psyched about X Men Apocalypse coming out this weekend. I am so tired about hearing people talk smack about uh, Olivia Moon in that film. Uh, she is awesome as Psylocke. I cannot wait for that. Apocalypse is like my favorite X-Men villain. So I'm hyper psyched up about that. And I will be kicking kids' butts from here into the middle of the next week at the world's biggest arcade. So these nice. are like, I have to tell you, they're going to try to play me an NBA jam. And it's going to be like, okay, yeah. You're going to kill I've been kill playing them. this since nineteen ninety four. Okay, all let's right. like bring it on. Let's go. Mortal Kombat 2, boom, dead. Mortal Kombat 3, dead. Time Crisis. I am just going to, oh, it's going to be so good. I, that is all I'm doing this week is obliterating children. I can't wait for
0: you to come back to us with stats about the children that you've obliterated. (laughs) Thank you for the title of this
2: show. Obliterating children. Christina, what are you up to? I love that. Um, Well, so um, I'm just, you know, kind of doing, you know, normal news stuff, but I did want to actually uh, call out an article I wrote earlier this week about um, how um, iPads are being used um, by schools. Um, And uh, I uh, went to uh, two schools in Brooklyn um, and saw both the kindergarten class and how they use an app called the Robot Factory. And um, I also uh, saw how um, middle school students are using a coding app called Hopscotch. And um, it was really interesting to kind of get get a look at like what what the iPad's role in education is. and so uh, I, I'm really happy with how that piece turned out, and i i uh, I encourage people to go. Yeah, back Yeah, I read will that.
0: definitely put that in the show notes for people to check out. I will spend my week head down editing a lot of videos about Overwatch and playing
1: Overwatch. Oh, and It's so good. Who, which, are 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 Who are you Roadhog maining? Who are you maiming?
0: Roadhog all the way because. Really? I know, oh. No, I'm so mad because like the oh. every single character, you know, there there are so many cool, beautiful, awesome, strong women in this game. And I was like looking at all the attacks and stuff and the way that they play. And I'm like, God, God darn it. I'm going to be playing, like, this ex-gangster, like, member. He, so Roadhog's backstory is that uh, there were some ro- some robots that were settled in the Australian outback after this great crisis, and they were peaceful. And then this organization uh, called the Australian Liberation Front rose to, like, drive the robots out of Australia, which is, like, such a, like, Nazi-esque reference, and he was a member of that organization, and I hate that. I hate that so much. But on the other hand, he has an awesome chain. And his play style is, like, perfect for me because I, like, I've tried to play as Farah a bit. But I am so bad. Oh, she's at, hard. I, she yeah. is tricky. Yeah. And I love her. She's amazing. Uh, but I have so much trouble staying out of the melee and, like, hanging back to shoot those rockets at people. So Roadhog mm-hmm. is much more my style because I can just charge in shoot a chain at someone, drag them to me, shoot them in the face and move on my way. And uh, yep. yeah, it's wonderful. Who are you mating?
1: Uh, You know, I love every single woman character in that game. They are all awesome. Farrah is awesome. Mercy is fun to play. Uh, Yami is very good. Um, Diva is just a blast. And what I love about this game from a game design perspective is It has characters for all levels of skill. Like Tracer is like wiring your senses up to a car battery because she moves so quickly and she takes such a high level of skill. But there's also Mercy who takes a very low level of skill and she's completely a critical part of any team. So... It's. I cannot say enough things about Overwatch. As far as I'm concerned, it's game of the year so far. So It's
0: really fun. And like, I am not a person yeah. who plays a lot of online multiplayer. Nope.
2: I guess I I'm should explain either. for
0: anyone who might not know what Overwatch is. Blizzard released a new um, hero shooter. So basically there's a roster of characters. Uh, it's a first-person shooter. You choose a character. And in your team, you go up against another team to take an objective. And it is All the characters, like, they look like they came out of a Pixar movie by way of, like, some wonderful fantasy world with robots – Uh, They actually released a ton of like little shorts, like two minute animated shorts that basically look like Pixar movies to give you some backstory on the world and what's happening with these characters. None of which is explored in the game because it is a team shooter. So you're just having fun and blasting people with your nice, fancy, bright colored guns. Um, But it's really aesthetically like we've talked about this before like how boring it is to have all these shooters that are green and gray and brown and drab and they're realistic guns. Yeah, it's. It's bright, it's colorful, it's a lot of fun. Like, there's there's just a lot of joy in the character design and in the level design and in the gameplay. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, check it out on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC, but not Mac.
1: <laughs> okay, before we go, you have to tell me, what do you think of Widowmakers, like, uh, character design.
0: I think that she is gay and she's dating Tracer. I'm sorry, yes. what? <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that would the be shorts? awesome. Oh my God. There are two uh, shorts look, where the- they interact with each other and they literally have so much chemistry that I, I can't so, stand
1: it. I know, right? Oh my God. I don't know. Like there are a lot of my feminist friends that are upset at you know Widowmaker's design. I think she's gorgeous. I think the colors in this game are gorgeous. Tracer is just... 10 out of 10 character design. I just, it's, it's, I almost don't like first person shooters. I almost want this to be any kind of other game because the world itself is so interesting. Mm -hmm. But I just, I love Widowmaker. I wish I didn't suck so bad at playing. Oh God,
0: yeah. I know, like I I want to play her, but then I'm like, Simone, you just stay away from that sniper class. You know you can't. I I just looked her up. She's hot. No, yeah, it's kind of like the thing where like, Yeah. yeah, I am like, their boob plate or like what the weird separated boob thing like that's kind of a a, a large industry wide issue i'm not gonna call widowmaker out because she looks freaking awesome and i i love her character design um i think it, it the strange unnaturally separated boobs in character design is something that we paint with a broad brush and there are cases when it can look really cool and be integrated well into a character just like any kind of sexy, quote-unquote, character design. So Widowmaker looks awesome. She, You should watch the short film about her because I'm in love with her. Um, (laughs) So I guess you could say that I'm biased. But uh, also, if you look her up, be careful because you'll see a lot of drawings
1: of her vagina. Oh, my
2: God. Um, I was going to say, I just did an image search for this and I'm seeing stuff that
1: anyway sorry sorry christina <laughs> it's we, fine. We, we're but corrupting you, you, your mind
2: <laughs> you're not i just i just didn't really i mean the game's new and there's already so much fan art
1: about Widowmaker and tracer out there that's there was an really... I 9 article gawker media talking about all the porn that's already been made with overwatch characters well pornhub so. actually
0: published an article like with the stats for overwatch porn searches that have been on their site so yep I'll put that in the show notes, too. <laughs> Do
1: it. <laughs> uh, we, you're going to have to play with us, Simone. You're going to have to play with my client.
0: All right, wait, are you point. on PC? It's, or?
1: Sorry. I'm on PS4.
0: Oh, thank God. Okay, yeah. I think we're already friends on PS4, so hit me up, and all I will right, play right, with you if definitely. you need a Roadhog, I'm because I'm not good here. enough for anything else. Um all right, all right. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of Rocket. Let's hear about where we can find us. I'm on Twitter at Quasar. Christina, what about you?
2: i'm at on twitter and snapchat and instagram and most other places at film
1: underscore girl brianna uh i'm not gonna be on twitter i will be on overwatch on ps4 (laughs) under the username (laughs) Brianna. will be in the world's
0: largest arcade and obliterating children both in overwatch and there
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's true but it will be space cat gal on twitter nice so
0: all right thanks for listening to this episode of rocket uh if you liked it please do give us a rating on itunes we super duper appreciate it and we'll be back with you next week This episode is terminated.
2: Terminated. Terminated.